Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. That's Michael Girardi's editorial board. A great song written by a listener. Really appreciate him for writing that song, sending it in. He based it on one of my, he called it a rant. I call it a sophisticated analysis of how the Chicago Tribune writes its editorials. Uh, and he, he boiled it down to just the inane uh, recommendations that the editorial board uh, takes. Like, that's something that you need, something that all mankind needs. Like, just to pick one example, uh, healthcare for all, Medicare for all, you know, insurance if you get sick. No! You shouldn't ask for that. It's too much. What are you, nuts? Just get sick and die. Anyway, great advice from our editorial boards. Thank you very much, Michael Girardi. It's Ben Jarofsky bonus time. I reversed that bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Thursday, April 9th. And, of course, it could be any time because it's a podcast. And you're listening at any time. I will ask my distinguished guest, as I always do, to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Miles Camp-Lassen. I am a web editor at In These Times magazine, um, writer, uh, freelance writer, published many different places, also a you know, cautiously optimistic Chicago Bulls fan. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, correct. that's right. The Bulls got a new general manager, my beloved Chicago Bulls. Miles is going to do all the restraint I have not to take the deep <laughs> dive into the Chicago Bulls, wearing my Bulls hat and everything. Uh, yes, the only good thing to come out of this pandemic is that it canceled uh, the Bulls season, which was utter disaster, hopeless season. And so it just took yeah, us they out. They could have been an eight seed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could have. Technically, he's correct, Miles. They were still eligible, they were still fighting for that eighth seed. Thank goodness they were just put out of their misery. They have a new general manager. We'll probably talk about it some other time. Um, anyway, that I hope you get a chance to listen to that song sometimes. It's a great song, great satirical song. Yeah, it is, the guy did a great job. Uh, it, you know, it's. Um, I guess it's apropos to think about it um, in today. What I really want to talk to you about is Bernie Sanders ending his campaign. Uh, this little slice of irony, which from the the New York Times, I was riffing on it earlier today, uh, Miles, I'll read you a headline from today's New York Times, an essay on the New York Times. This is an essay that ran the day after Bernie Sanders uh, dropped out of his, uh, his race for president. Bernie Sanders was right 
back when, and he's still right now. This is the headline in an essay to New York Times. Thanks for nothing, New York Times. When he was running, he never said anything remotely like that. All you did was nitpick or attack. He had various columnists. Everybody from the left to the right, what constitutes the left on the New York Times, Miles. Everybody on the New York Times, it's like, it's like if you're going to work for the New York Times, the first thing you had to do was give an oath of allegiance to the We Don't Like Bernie Sanders Club. They were ripping him. And now he's out of the race. Oh, well, we love you, Bernie. Thanks a lot for nothing, New York Times. Speaking of editorial boards. Anyway, do you share my uh, thoughts about the New York Times, Miles? Well, yeah, except for the particular author of that piece is Elizabeth Brunig, who's the, um, the lone real uh, voice of the, the you know young American left who's on their editorial board. So I am not surprised that uh, she was the one who wrote that piece. And I think it is a pretty good summation of the fact that, you know, regardless of any critiques you might have with Bernie Sanders, which, of course, <laughs> basically the entire New York Times uh, editorial board does not to mention the mainstream media as a whole like you can't avoid the fact that like he's an honest politician you know and like a dignified one and that might have been in some ways i mean what elizabeth points to is that that might have been part of his downfall and that he didn't you know go hard against biden or even really hillary clinton in 2016 the way so many other candidates would have and certainly did you know in previous campaigns but part of Bernie's whole approach to politics has been about, I'm going to focus on the issues. I'm an issues guy, you know, not doing negative attacks, not do, not going negative. So, I mean, that's kind of what she wrote, which even if you don't agree with his politics, I think you can uh, generally, you know, come to terms with the fact he was an honest politician in many ways. And so I think that's, that's part of the reason that that one got to run in the, uh, the actual print issue. Yeah, they put it in the print issue now this campaign's over. Look, I don't doubt that there's somebody who works at the New York Times, maybe even two, three, four, five, six people who support Bernie Sanders. I'm just saying that the New York Times was worthless, absolutely worthless in promoting the ideas of Bernie Sanders when he was running, both in 2016 and 2020. And I'll just put it to you this way, Miles, Bernie Sanders' proposals, putting aside like, what you're saying is true. He was very virtuous in that he didn't uh, descend into the muck and the mire. All right, putting that aside, Bernie Sanders' proposals are far closer to the ideals of Democratic voters than anything Joe Biden represents, okay? Anything that Amy Klobuchar represents. You know, and the New York Times, they didn't help Bernie on this front at all. They promoted the notion that Bernie was unrealistic, that Bernie could never win, that you couldn't win over mainstream America. Everything you and I have been talking about and when it comes to the media and Bernie Sanders for the, how long we've been doing this, Miles? About a year at least? Everything we've been talking about is like personified, symbolized, represented by the New York Times. And just kill me the day after he left. Oh, Bernie was right. I don't know, Miles. <laughs> I had a hard time with this one. I'm just saying. I hear you. Well, there's a, there's a grand fiction, you know, that it, that – what you just laid out, essentially, that Bernie was too radical, that his politics were too far, far, far out of the mainstream and that he just could never win, that Americans would never go for uh, what Bernie was selling, even though 
you look at the exit polls from literally every single primary, uh, Medicare for all, the signature issue of the Bernie Sanders campaign was massively popular by Democratic voters, right? Uh, majorities uh, went for, even in deep red states, you know, even in uh, the uh, areas where, you know, Joe Biden uh, trounced Bernie in terms of the actual vote, he, uh, voters still said they wanted a universal health care plan that was funded by the government that would replace private insurance. You know, the most extreme version of Medicare for all voters are all on board with. And especially now you've seen, you know, in the past month in the midst of this uh, pandemic, the support for Medicare for all has shot up. It's at its highest level. Now 55% of the entire American public, including vast majorities of Democrats, of course, but also increasing number of Republicans back uh, the plan. And even Republicans are talking about now like expanding Medicare and Medicaid benefits to cover care during this uh, crisis, because that's just, you know, a common sense solution when the private market is failing to provide a basic service that, you know, you have the government step in to uh, make up where they're failing. So I don't think that uh, any of his policies were actually radical. That's part of this fiction that has been uh, you know, permeated throughout the mainstream media for years now to make it seem as if you, that those things are just impossible. And you know why they're impossible? Because they're opposed by all of the uh, financial elite that run the organizations that fund all of these news outlets that also just are, you know, the central uh, power structures in American society, the things that, you know, the, the the places that get bailed out, you know, if they start to fail. These are all the people who are threatened by the kind of, kind of platform Bernie's running on. And you know why you know that is because today, the day after um, Bernie dropped out, the stocks of all these major <laughs> pharmaceutical insurance companies are going through the roof. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clear, like, there's economic interests at play, there's incentives at play, and all of that informs a media narrative which is set up in order to, you know, produce the result that they need in order to keep the system functioning. And that's the, you know, the biggest issue I think that this, this came down to is people understandably want to get rid of Donald Trump. That's their number one goal, you know, Democrats, because they see him as a unique threat to this country, which by God, I mean, look what just happened today. The uh, government announced they're going to uh, stop, the federal government is going to stop funding testing in states for coronavirus and the people are aghast at this but the reason it seems quite obvious to me is that you know trump has said he wants to get over this very soon he said we're going to forget about it as if it never happened right this is what donald trump just tweeted yesterday whereas trudeau in canada just you know announced that it's going to be until a vaccine life will not go back to normal in canada at all until there is a vaccine so that's 18 months. It's what he said, you know, a minimum of 18 months. Meanwhile, here, Donald Trump says we're going to forget about it soon. And he's stopping, he's cutting off testing because he wants to keep the official death rate low uh, associated with, because he wants the numbers down. That's what he said, the death numbers he wants to keep under these benchmarks. And the way you get the death numbers down is you just don't test anybody. So nobody knows that you have it. So he's cutting off the testing. I mean, this is like the cruelty and depravity at the heart of the Trump administration uh, and the White House. So of course, Democratic voters want to get Trump out. I want to get Trump out more than anything. I mean, so, but the problem is that they were told that Bernie could never do that, you know, that other people wouldn't go for it, that he's too much of a risk right now. We can't 
do that. We got to go with a safe bet. And Biden, as we both have seen, you know, in mainstream media has just had complete kids go kids gloves on the Biden campaign since the beginning. And uh, he was just, you know, treated as the the, the person who could uh, best take on Trump and return us to an era pre-Trump. And people, of course, understandably bought into that. The problem is that, I mean, look, this is going to be a huge challenge, this general election. We don't even know what the contours of it are going to be because of this pandemic um, in terms of how voting will go, you know, in terms of how campaigning will go. There's a lot of open questions. Um, but you can't deny the fact that the platform that Bernie ran on is incredibly popular, among the Democratic base, and it's only gotten more popular throughout the time he's run for president. So that's like, you know, the biggest takeaway, I think, is all of this fiction around his policies are too radical, he's too radical, therefore he can't win, is just not borne out by people's actual beliefs and opinions about the type of program that Bernie was running on. Yeah, by the way, you're what you started off talking about Wall Street. Dennis and I were just talking about that. That there was a story I was reading the headline: stocks rise, and of course, it's because Bernie Sanders uh, dropped out of the race. And it's like and I, my reaction when I saw that Miles was like, "Yeah, the guy who was trying to actually do something for somebody is out of the race. We can go back to making money." And it's just like yeah. there is a lot. I talk. I use the word insane so much now. So much is insane about mm -hmm. this time I'm living in, starting with the president of the United States. Your point is he is out of his freaking mind. So it, it would double down in the amount of insanity in the world if the voters of the United States decided that the person best suited to run our country in the middle of a pandemic would be a lunatic. I would say that Joe Exotic from Tiger King might be a better president <laughs> than uh, Donald Trump, or at least it's tied. They're both insane. So yeah, when I saw that, I go, "Wow, it's American capitalism at its best." Uh, meanwhile, they're all those companies. We're looking for a bailout. You watch, if the economy really tanks, suddenly they'll find their inner Bernie Sanders. They'll feel the burn when they want a handout to protect themselves from the ravages of their own capitalistic state. Oh, yeah, no, it's we cannot fail. So, yeah, when you said the thing about Wall Street, it uh, really hit home. You talked about the contours of the coming election. It was on exhibit in Wisconsin. And talk about it a little bit, Miles. I know you follow these things. The state of Wisconsin had a primary on Tuesday. Uh, the voters, they, they were 180 different voting stations in Milwaukee. There had been. They closed it down to five uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, the Republicans had gone to uh, uh, file the suit to keep the um, uh, to, to keep the, the governor from extending the deadline from allowing uh, people to do vote by absentee all the way into June. And uh, it went to the Supreme Court. The Supremes, by a uh, five to four margin, ratified that. It's all about voter suppression, voter repression, keeping black people from voting. You talk about that's that's the Trump plan. I, I think it's pretty obvious, don't you? Well, he's, I mean, Donald Trump said at the press conference the other day, he said we can't go to vote by mail because Republicans will lose forever if we do that, right? So he's just giving away the game that this is all, you're, democracy is not the North Star retaining power. And that's how the right has, you know, approached elections for decades now, is ruthlessly, you know, without any trying to, you know, pose their strategy as, you know, somehow living up to American ideals. No, they're like, we got to 
stay in power. And if you, you know, actually expand the franchise, if you, you know, allow people with, you know, uh, prison records to vote, if you, you know, open up more polling locations, if you make, you know, uh, election day a national holiday, if you do any of the basic things that would actually live up to our, you know, claims to be a fully democratic society, you're going to hurt Republican chances because their whole uh, strategy of remaining in power is built upon um, controlling the mechanisms by which people are able to participate in uh, elections. And Lord knows that this is a prime uh, opportunity for them to clench their fists even uh, stronger around how, you know, we run our elections in the United States and sending people out in the midst of a pandemic, when the state is on lockdown and the governor has ordered an executive order to stop the election and still saying, no, you have to go. If you want to participate in this democracy to risk your health, the lives of your family and your community. And even then you're, uh, you know, there's, they're not, they're refusing to count, as you said, you know, absentee ballots and ballots that would come in later. So, it's all set up in such a way as to not only keep people from actually voting, which is what we should, shouldn't we be encouraging people to, you know, vote as much as they possibly can in this society, in the country where you have some of the lowest voter turnout in the developed world. Um, so not only that, but it also just like sends this message, like what the heck, what is going to happen in November? Like we're not going to be over this crisis then. Um, I, I mean, we'll be in a different stage of it, surely, but like, it's not going to be have gone away. And so how are we going to conduct an actual election? How are we get the, I mean, the census is a whole other story. I won't, won't even get into, but like, in terms of the election, this is such, this will have such a profound impact in the future of our country, whether Donald Trump is reelected or we, you know, have a change in the White House. And they're clearly, you know, giving away the game. Like Trump says, look, we can't do mail-in. Meanwhile, as it you know turned out, he mailed in his ballot from the White House to Mar-a-Lago in Florida when he voted in the Florida election. But he said at the press conference, he said, "Well, I can do it. It doesn't apply to me, you know." But he said, in general, we can't do mail-in because there's mass voter fraud. Is what he said, even though there's no you know evidence to back that up whatsoever. So I'm very concerned about like how the election will go forward and what they're with what the you know, the far right that uh, controls the ju- judiciary in this country is going to do with that 5-4 decision, throwing out tens of thousands of ballots, disenfranchised mass amounts of people and largely, you know, working class people of color who wanted to have their voices heard in this electoral process and they weren't allowed to because of some right wing justices. And I think that that's going to, you know, be a major challenge uh, when it, leading up to November. Yeah, I hope they... Uh the Biden campaign is ready to fight that front because you're right. That could be the deciding factor in a state like Wisconsin, uh, where they're trying to keep 200,000 people off the voting rolls. That's what that whole fight was over because it was, there's also a Supreme cut Supreme court, Wisconsin state Supreme court justice race, uh, at, at stake, uh, in on Tuesday's election. And if the Democrats had won, they probably would have ended up ruling the Supreme Court of Wisconsin would have ruled against the effort to cut 200,000 people from the rolls. If the Republicans win, they'll cut the 200,000 people from the rolls. Anybody who thinks that this was about cleaning up fraud in election is kidding themselves. This was a raw political power move by the Republican Party to hold on to Wisconsin and in the hopes that Wisconsin would be the decisive state in the electoral battle. 
And I find it so ironic uh, in another, a painful way, Miles. All this whole election cycle, they were using the argument of swing voters in Wisconsin could decide the election uh, and Bernie would scare them. No, what's going to decide the election is just this raw power move by the Republicans to knock 200,000 people off the rolls in Wisconsin. And all these Democrats go, yeah, the swing voters in Wisconsin were really worried about them. And then boom, Republicans. Man. Democrats think they can win this game by playing nice, Miles. I don't get this. Please explain that to me. Well, I'm exactly uh, on board with you. I mean, I think that this is just goes to show the limits of traditional, like, democratic liberalism that has just, you know, defined how the party has operated for so long. And it can't, you, it's either naivety, like, you know, somehow believing if we just keep trying, if we just keep, you know, operating uh, without sticking our necks out or without, you know, offending the other side of the aisle that will get our way in the end. Or it's just the fact that they're, you know, not as concerned about these very life or death issues that are at stake in these elections. I mean, that's that's what it really comes down to. That when you have, uh, you know, uh, something like a state supreme court, they'll rule on issues that affect people's daily lives when it comes to, you know, healthcare funding, when it comes to the social safety net, when it comes to, you know, incarceration, all of these things that dramatically impact people's lives are at stake. I mean, that's why we care so much about politics, right, is because it, it, it has dramatic impacts on the world around us and the people that we, you know, love and care about. So you, you've got to treat it as if, you know, this, these are the stakes here. And the right certainly knows the stakes. And to them, it's their clutch on power that they have, uh, even though they're a minority party in terms of like the amount of support. I mean, they're not winning the popular vote in the general election. If they had, you know, more, uh, if, if we actually had a voting uh, participation rate that reflected the demographics of this country, we would of course see democratic governance across the state, democratic party governance across the state. But we've allowed our uh, democracy to be so undercut by these Republican power plays, as you put it, that, you know, we're in this situation and it seems like very few people are willing to stand up. Now, not, it's not that nobody is. I mean, we have people like AOC speaking out about the travesty of the uh, uh, election in Wisconsin and Bernie Sanders, he was still in the race before the uh, Wisconsin vote. And he said it should be called off, you know, like that, but he was a minority voice, even within his own party. Why is that? I mean, why is there not more outrage at these clearly like politically motivated plays that put people's lives at risk and that are going to be you know, detrimental to Democrats actually achieving their stated aims. I, it, it's got to be one of those two. Either they're still naive or they're just not as concerned as the, they claim to be. Yeah, or uh, naive. Yeah, they, they believe uh, the old ways of doing things are still going to prevail. All right, let's get to Joe Biden, the presumptive diamond. Uh, <laughs> you heard that gulp, Hundy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Confession time. I guess anybody listening to this knows I did not vote for Joe Biden in the uh, in the primary that took place two weeks ago or whatever it was. I voted for the guy that lost, Bernie Sanders. So I'm going to ask you this question. I believe you voted for the guy who lost as well, based on everything you've read and said for the last year. So what do you think Joe Biden needs to do to win over 
Bernie Sanders voters? Uh, a lot more uh, than he is doing. You Today, uh, it was announced that his campaign was making overture, is how they <laughs> framed it, to yeah. the Bernie Sanders wing of the, of the party. And you know what was included, what the key change in Biden's uh, platform was, or what, he, what, he, what he's running on? He's going to, you know, he's been refusing to uh, embrace Medicare for all at all. In fact, he said he would veto Medicare for all, if, even if it passed through a Democratic Congress. You know, even if Nancy Pelosi signed off on it, the bill came to his desk, he's president, he would veto it. Um, so clearly, this is somebody pretty opposed. I mean, nobody else has, n- none of the other Democrats were running for uh, for president said, said they might not they might not be running on Medicare for all, but none of them said they would outright reject it that way. Well, uh, now Biden, in a turn of opinion has decided, well, we can actually expand Medicare, but we're not going to do it for all. Right now, as we know, Medicare covers everybody 65 and up. He's willing to lower the eligibility age of Medicare from 65 to 60. That's his big overture to the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And look, even Barack Obama, who is, you know, widely still loved as a, you know, a two-term president um, and was the reason that Joe Biden has this, you know, stature in American politics right now. Um, Barack Obama fought to lower the Medicare eligibility age to 55. So Joe Biden's, like, swing to the left to get Bernie voters is still far to the right of even where Obama was, who was his president. Like, did Joe Biden disagree with Barack Obama when he was trying to lower the Medicare age of 55? That's not Medicare for all. That's not even close. So that's why I say a lot more, because clearly he's trying, he thinks that he's extending an open hand to Bernie supporters. But we believe health care is a human right, and we believe that there's got to be a fundamental change of, you know, the balance of power in our society to take it away from the clutches of pharmaceutical companies who still, you know, run the game. And especially in the time of a pandemic, we've got to provide care uh, for all people because all of our futures are bound up together. You know, one person gets coronavirus, they're going to spread it. So if we, if we don't, if they're not insured, if they can't access testing and care, we're all at risk. That's how society works. And that's why so many countries have decided that it is, needs to be a public good, universal, free, guaranteed to everyone. And yet Joe Biden has just said, well, we're going to guarantee it to everybody 60 and up. That's not enough. That's just not even, you know, to the scale of the problem. So there's far more I could go into from, you know, it, he needs to change his position on public college. He needs to change his position on uh, climate change. I mean, look, the bill that they just passed in the stimulus bill, the $2.2 trillion, uh, stimulus bill, is far bigger than Joe Biden's entire climate plan to deal with the climate crisis. Like, that, it's just mind-boggling how not... Uh, up to the challenge of our times his program is right now. And so we need some real um, change. And he could do that. I mean, Joe Biden could say, look, I actually have taken away from this uh, pandemic experience that we have, you know, we need to make some real changes in how we run healthcare in this country. And that means we've got to, you know, expand healthcare benefits to everybody. That means we've got to, you know, provide 
some uh, guaranteed income to people. That means we've got, I mean, he could take up Bernie's whole coronavirus response plan, which included uh, $2,000 month payments, which included 80% of people's payroll being covered by the government, which is what they're doing in Denmark and France and so many other countries. Um, I mean, Spain has now announced they're uh, instituting a universal basic income for all residents of Spain. Like these are things that other countries are already doing and embracing. They're not far outside the box. And yet Joe Biden's campaign just seems incredibly stubborn and how unwilling they are to take on some of these ideas when they don't really have a plan. I mean, I've read Joe Biden's coronavirus plan. It's full of platitudes and, 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 you know, vague calls, but it doesn't, it's nothing like what uh, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Ilhan Omar and others have called for. So I think that there's a lot, lot, lot more that Joe Biden is going to have to do in terms of policy to win over some, uh, some more of the uh, Bernie supporters. Well, you, uh, you put it very well. I was, I've been in the studio all day. So, or, or, I missed Joe Biden's latest pronouncement. I didn't know it. You, you broke that news to me. Uh, I'm just sitting here stunned. You're absolutely correct. You know, it, there's this notion that uh, politicians can't change their views. They can't flip-flop, even though most of them do all the time. Uh, Barack Obama did it on uh, gay marriage, just thinking of the first thing that pops into mind. And uh, I think you're this would be a perfect opportunity for Joe Biden to say, you know what? The world's a lot different today than it was uh, six months ago or a month ago. And I've, I've come to the realization that we're in the middle of an emergency. We do need uh, Medicare for all. So, you know, I'm going to embrace it. I don't think anybody can hold that against him, uh, but it's, it's sad to think that, that uh, he's not even going to go there. I'll give another example. I've mentioned this issue, this to you before we went on the air. And this is something I'm thinking about. I may actually write about it. And it's obviously not one of the top three issues facing America today, particularly since we're in the, the middle of this pandemic. But Joe Biden's bizarre opposition to the legalization of reefer, I can't figure that one out. And I was just having a conversation with Sonia Harper for a different interview that we, we uh, it's already aired by the time this one airs, state representative from the south side of Chicago, who has a bill in the state house, Miles filed me on this one, that would uh, allow for the uh, delivery of marijuana cannabis, uh, recreational marijuana cannabis. And her notion is that it's these could create jobs for people who are locked out of the cannabis market. And uh, so I hope that bill passes. Sure. And her, she was like giving Joe, she goes, well, Joe's from a different generation, Ben, than, than you or me. I'm like, man, Joe Biden was born in like 1941, around the time Bob Dylan was born. Around the time that John Lennon, when Paul McCartney, Molly's reefer heads were born. It's not like he, you know what I'm saying? It's not like Joe Biden came of age with people who were smoking reefer. So his note, you know what I'm saying? It's not like it's foreign to him. I'm sure a lot of the people that work for him smoke it. You get what I'm saying? It's just like a simple thing. Of course. This Joe Biden will be against marijuana, and Donald Trump, who couldn't care less about anything other than winning, will say, you know what? I'm going to come out in favor of the legalization of marijuana. And suddenly Joe Biden will be to the right of Donald Trump and Reefer. Miles, you watch. Well, there's so many. That will happen. Go ahead. There's so many issues where he could, you know, we're, we're, we're already beginning to see this happening. I mean, I mentioned health care with some Republicans, you know, uh, bringing up expanding 
Medicare and Medicaid benefits during the time of the uh, pandemic. There's uh, Republican today just uh, announced a plan somewhat similar to Bernie's in terms of having um, the government cover up to 80 percent of wages for people that are out of work. These are things that mainstream Democrats, including Joe Biden, still have not gotten on. And it really does run the risk of uh, ceding that ground. to the other side. And we, if the Democratic Party is going to live up to its stated um, belief in being the party of the working people, then you've got to propose bold policies that will actually benefit working people and put them, uh, you know, in contrast to what the Republicans are doing, which is just helping out the, their friends on Wall Street, which is what they've always done. I mean, look at that. Uh, $500 billion in the stimulus bill. It's a bailout essentially to corporate America. It had some strings attached, and we talked about this before on the show. And since then, Trump has done a signing statement where he took out all of the oversight provisions, and then he fired the invest- <laughs> the, the person that was supposed to be in charge of overseeing the fund. So now there's nothing in charge. So it is just a complete flush fund. That's all happened since we last talked. So that's clear. Like, that's what they want to do. If Democrats want to like win over working people, then they've got to do the opposite of that and try to bail out working class people. That's a little different than, you know, the marijuana specifically. But look, I think that when um, your previous guest had uh, mentioned Joe Biden's from a different time, I don't even think that really, I don't know uh, exactly what she meant, but I don't think that even for me, that doesn't mean culturally he's from a different time. It's like Joe Biden is the person that shepherded and pushed through the crime bill in uh, the 90s, right, under Bill Clinton. And this bill specifically uh, accelerated the war on drugs, uh, certainly accelerated mass incarceration in the United States, and it was based off of this idea that there's a scourge of drug usage in our communities and that to stamp it out, we need a highly more punitive system that is going to punish people at every turn and specifically punish them for doing drugs And it was the same kind of mindset of marijuana is a gateway drug, and that is just a breeding ground for future crime. And so the way that you stamp that out is you get rid of the drugs on the streets entirely. So I think that's probably more still Joe Biden's view of the world. When look at Illinois, we passed it. We have, you know, it's not like J.B. Pritzker is some radical, but he, uh, you know, helped to bring uh, marijuana legalization to the state and we're seeing massive revenues for it, it's now considered an essential service. You know, it went it went from being illegal to now being essential in, in a short period of time. And if Joe Biden was willing to change his position on something like that, um, we could see a huge change in how, you know, it would, it would certainly spur the industry. I mean, one of the biggest problems right now is, you know, with the uh, marijuana industry is just that people, we can't put the money in the banks because it's still an illegal drug. So uh, on a federal level, so it really uh, restricts how much you can do in terms of uh, financing through marijuana, expanding businesses, going across state lines, all this kind of stuff. Whereas if it was uh, decriminalized at least, on a federal level that would um, change so much and be a huge economic boon to the country at a time when we're going through a a massive crisis. So completely agree with you on that. Joe should get behind weed. Yeah, Joe should get, Joe should start smoking some weed. I'll see it make the world a little differently. Uh, All right. Now I'm going to ask you to engage uh, in a couple of uh, sort of parlor games that we've been playing in the show the last couple of days. 
the first one is th- this notion I had that Joe Biden would actually not be the nominee. That at some point the issue of Joe Biden's competence would emerge uh, and the powers that be in the Democratic Party, probably Barack Obama, would take him aside and say, Joe, maybe this isn't the best thing for you to do right now in your life and that they would usher somebody else in. Uh, since I've put that out as a fantasy, pretty much everybody that I've mentioned it to has said, Ben, you're out of your mind. It's never going to happen. So uh, just forget about it, okay? Uh, <laughs> so let's say it did happen. Who would your, uh, I make, I had to do five, but that's really hard for you. Who would your three re- top replacements be in terms of the, the three most electable Democrats? And Bernie can't be one of them because um bernie's already been turned down by roughly 65 percent of the electorate so just for the sake of this part of the game who would you who would the top three be don't say bernie because everybody all our listeners when they weigh when they come in with their five would be bernie bernie bernie, bernie. <laughs> okay all right we uh let's just say we can't put bernie in there who would you uh consider can we do just like a generic democrat who's willing to just take on bernie's whole program because that, that might be, that might work too. Uh, I think, you know, there's a bunch of people in the Democratic Party that could uh, step into that role right now, even outside of Bernie Sanders, who would do a much, much, much better job. I mean, it's a whole crew of people who ran for president. I was not big fans of any of them in terms of like people that carry my politics. I mean, unfortunately, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not old enough right now, um, but if she was, she, she'd be great. Um, Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, um, even people like Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren, I think, would you know be uh, much better uh, prepared to deal with the crisis through you know following uh, uh, their political commitments they've had for a long time of fighting for working people. Um, that, and they're just competent. You know, these are people that would be capable of taking on. Uh, position like the presidency in a way that is we many of us who really want to see Donald Trump out of office and want to you know do everything we can to make that happen and yet are concerned about the current presumptive nominee I mean there's I'm very worried about what's going to happen in the in coming months uh now that all the attention is going to be on Joe Biden as he is the presumptive nominee I mean for a long time we, media was able to kind of not cover that because both obviously coronavirus, but also the fact that there was an ongoing primary. Now it's all Joe Biden. He's going to be in the spotlight and we're going to see what, you know, what his medal is if he's up for this challenge. And I think that that's going to be, many of us are very worried about what that will bring because we desperately want to uh, see political change in this country. I mean, that, I'm speaking as somebody who covers politics, but also who is, you know, as particular priorities in terms of what we see accomplished. And uh, those types of people, the Rokanas, the Pramila Jayapals, those are people that I think are share in what Bernie was running on. And that's the thing. If Bernie's whole campaign was always not me, us. It was about a broader vision of politics and a set of policies and uh, political ideas, not really about him. And Bernie is an older guy, you know, he's, not he was not the best positioned person to be the leader of this movement in terms of a candidate. Uh, but what he did do is that I think will be the longest lasting legacy of his campaign is he taught American people that they uh, deserve 
to ask for more, you know, that they are entitled to much, much more than what they're given. And when people are shown that and start to realize that, there's no turning back. You know, people aren't going to just be like, okay, well, I guess the half loaf works because Bernie's out of the race. No, they want the whole thing. And they're going to keep wanting that regardless of his campaign being gone. So somebody who follows in that kind of movement uh, is who I would want to see as a, as a Democrat. But as you said, it's a part of the game right now because sadly, I think that Joe Biden's going to be the, the, the nominee and I think he's going to be running against Trump in November. And so who, the second part of the game, who would you like to see as vice president? Um, I haven't thought tons about that, to be honest, but I mean, he already said it was going to be uh, a woman. Um, I don't think Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders <laughs> ticket would be possible no. <laughs> or, you know, even uh, a wise idea. Uh, but I, I love and Barbara Lee, uh, I think, is an, uh, an incredible representative. Um, uh, for Mila Jayapal, again, I think she, you know, is uh, a great leader. She's the head of the Progressive Caucus in Congress. She's somebody who has uh, history in movement organizing, but she also has been in the halls of power for a long time and is very savvy, has a lot of relationships on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, Maxine Waters, potentially. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, different different people that uh, he could pull from, but the problem is that those are all people that don't really share Joe Biden's politics. So I don't know. It's either going to be uh, uncomfortable marriage or the Joe with Joe is going to go with some safe pick. I mean, most likely I think it's going to be Gretchen Whitmer, the, the, the governor of Michigan, but we'll see. I already put my money in Vegas on who he's going to pick on Kamala Harris. Uh, so of mm-hmm. course I wouldn't listen to my, my predictions. Should have, I had the bulls winning 45 games this year, uh, miles. So uh, <laughs> don't follow my lead. Uh, I, my top of my pick uh, dream team would have been uh, is uh, Stacey Abrams. That's who the one I want him to pick. Uh, but I think he'll pick Kamala Harris. All right, before we let you go, uh, tell folks uh, what articles you've written lately that they should know about and how they can find the good work that you do, Miles. Sure. Well, I just published an article yesterday on anytimes.com uh, called uh, The Future Belongs to the Movement Sparked by Bernie Sanders. So uh, a little elegy to campaign. Um, so you can read that now. Uh, we've also got a lot of other great content on the site about Bernie, about the you know failed government response to coronavirus. We've got a great piece by Emma Roller about the travesty of the election in Wisconsin, which we were talking about earlier. So uh, a lot of good stuff there. And uh, I, uh, for one, am excited for this ESPN horse game we have coming up in a few days. We're going to see Zach Levine and Paul Pierce uh, go up against one another. Uh, I've, I mean, I've enjoyed playing horse games before. Yeah. I've never watched one on TV. It might be uh, completely ridiculous, but I mean, we all need a little bit of sports in our lives right now. So at least we're at least we're going to get some of that. And a change is finally afoot at the uh, Advocate Center. So you're going to see a new face, Chicago Bulls, at least in the front office. Uh, so excited about that. Got some just some positive. Uh, uh, things to focus on over these past I didn't days. know they were playing not a horse game. Terrible. Yeah, I, I did they're not. A horse. horse, yeah. I didn't know Zach Attack, yeah. Zach Levine was playing pop. That's breaking news on the Ben Jarofsky show. I did not know that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that they dis- designated a Paul Pierce. So, yeah, obviously they're going to be different gyms doing their shots. They're not oh. going to be the same gym. We'll see if someone, whoever's losing, adds an S and plays horses. 
You ever done that? No. Add an extra letter? <laughs> horse fly? You ever play horse fly when you're down? Okay, okay. I'm oh, How about we play horse fly? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did I say best two out of three? I meant three out of five. Oh, okay, yeah. I've been known to do that. Uh, or, or there's the David Axelrod approach. David Axelrod, of course, being the um, uh, political strategist for the Democratic Party many years ago. Miles, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Many, many years ago, I was in a uh, basketball game with uh, Axelrod that uh, used to take place on a regular basis at an old YMCA. I have an interview set up with Axelrod. Uh, Please don't ruin it. It's going out the window. He was notorious. (laughs) Okay, let me get before I get to what he what he was notorious for. Let me just give him a shout out. The guy had a good three point shot. Okay, but he was absolutely notorious for cheating at the score. So his team, no matter what, he would be keeping a running score. You know the guy, like he was the guy in the game that kept the running score. You remember that? You know, like in any uh, pickup game, there's one guy that keeps the yeah. score. Most people scorekeeper. No, literally in the game, he's the guy who takes the role of he barks out the score as you're uh, running out court. And most guys are just playing the game; they're not thinking about. It. But there's always some like hustler in the game huh, that'll make it to eight to seven. Well, no matter what happened, Axelrod's team would be ahead. And I'm like, hey, wait a wow. minute, man. My memory. <laughs> That's right. No, uh, technically. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So maybe uh, Paul Pierce will find his inner David oh, Axelrod. We just got an email. Hold on. Let me look and see. Okay. Axelrod canceled. <laughs> there went that. Uh, I can't imagine David Axelrod coming on this show. Uh, but anyway, so Paul Pierce. I would put my money at Zach. Well, I don't know. It's a shooting. It's just horse. So it's just creative shots. So. Uh, well, I hope we get some creative shots. I'm worried it's all going to be like shots from the three point, from you know, way outside the three point line or something. I don't, I don't need to see the long shots. I want to see the, I want to see from you know behind the backboard. Yeah, mix well, it up a little. Okay, if Zach Attack really wants to win, all he has to do is start dunking. How's Paul Pierce going to yeah. dunk? So they got to have some That's rules true. about dunking. I, yeah. You know, that eliminate the dunk because physically, I don't know if Paul Pierce. I mean, Paul Pierce has got to be in his 40s by now. I mean, I, I guess he can dunk maybe once, but to try to do it twice, you know. I, you know how, here, here's a little. Uh, you got a better chance of dunking than you do, Ben. I can tell you this. If you want to win a horse, just want to win, just keep doing a layup. Sooner or later, the person you're shooting will miss the layup. Tricks for a horse. All right. <laughs> wow, this is some good advice uh, from, from Benny Pierce. Miles Kaflassen, uh, he writes. Uh, he plays music, and he plays basketball. That's correct. Uh, uh, give folks uh, the information where they need if they want to get a hold of you, Miles. Sure. Well, if you uh, if you want to reach out, you can always reach me at my uh, email, miles, M-I-L-E-S, at inthesetimes.com, um, or follow me on twitter.com at, at Miles K. Lassen. That's at M-I-L-E-S-K-L-A-S-S-I-N. Uh, you'll hear my uh, views on politics and basketball and uh, music and much else on there. So if you want to keep up to date, give me a follow. Miles, just before we go, were you a John Prine fan? I was very sad uh, about about his passing. Um, the uh, Angel from Montgomery, one of my one of my all time favorite songs. So um, much love to John Prine. Hope he's you know singing some songs somewhere yeah right now. it was a rough uh, week for me uh in terms of 
guys I grew up loving in terms of music, John Prine and Bill Withers, the great Bill Withers. They both died, I think, back-to-back days. So tough week for me. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Bill Withers songs uh, for the last three or four days, and John Prine as well. So anyway, I had a feeling uh, that you would be a fan of John Prine. All right, Miles, <laughs> thanks so much. He comes on our show uh, once a week. And, um, you know, Bernie's out of the race, but we'll still be talking politics. All right, Miles? Plenty, plenty more to talk about. Very good. Miles Conflasen. Okay, talk to you soon, Ben. Take care. That's Miles Conflasen. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Good job, Miles. He's awesome.